0: I have fallen for it. And it's, first of all, it's just such a great name because it's so evocative. Um, so the sunk cost fallacy is a fallacy of decision making. And I think it's something that, I mean, if you tell me you've never fallen for the sunk cost fallacy, I'll, I'll probably call you a liar.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Let's have some fun and games, okay? Let's talk about poker. Maybe when you hear poker, it makes you think about statistics and math. Maybe it makes you think about casinos. Maybe it makes you think about James Bond. Though, sorry, he played Baccarat. If you're like me and know nothing about poker, maybe it makes you think of that Lady Gaga song from like 12 years ago now. But maybe when you think about poker, you don't think as much as you should about psychology. Maria Konnikova did. That's why she's here now. She's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, and you might have heard her here on the podcast with one of them, The Confidence Game. She's a contributor to The New Yorker, and now she's here with her new book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. In related news, she's got more than $300,000 in poker winnings. Maria, thank you so much for being here with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Bethany.
1: Um, now, you decided to learn to play poker. With the goal of playing in the World Series of Poker. You did not, in fact, know how to play poker at all. Why did you do this? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Isn't that the question for the ages? um, not only did I not know how to play poker, but I had zero interest in poker. I had zero interest in games. I did not grow up playing games. we didn't have any cards in my house when I was growing up. I didn't play chess, I didn't play checkers. I don't really like board games. I mean, to me, kind of torture is being set is being told. Now we're going to play a game. It's just not something I enjoy. I'd much rather read a book. So it was a very strange thing for me to decide to do. And the path to it was not a straightforward one. Initially, I knew I wanted to write a book about luck about the role that luck plays in our lives and how we can really learn to tell the difference between those things that we can control and those things that we can't. And as anyone who's written a book or even a magazine article or a newspaper article knows, you really can't write a book about luck. Like, that's that's just... That's a philosophical inquiry. You know, that's, that's a encyclopedia. That's not a book. Um, so I needed an angle. I needed a way into the topic. When I start any new project, it doesn't matter how short it is. You know, it could be a thousand word column. I read a lot. That's kind of my always, always, always my first step. I try to read and become acquainted with it and figure out, you know, what's going on? What does this field look like? What does this? theme look like? What does this area look like? Whatever it is I'm writing about. And so I started reading about luck and read a lot of stuff over a lot of months and couldn't quite find, you know, what my book was going to be. Then someone actually suggested, they said, you know, if you're interested in chance, you should read about game theory. Game theory is a really interesting way of looking at chance. And I said, oh, that's a really, that's a good idea. So I ended up reading the theory of games, which is the foundational text of game theory, which was written by John von Neumann, who um, who's this brilliant, brilliant, uh, polymath, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, um, one of the inventors of the computer, one of the inventors of the hydrogen bomb. You know, some inventions are better than others. Um, but brilliant guy. And in the book, I learned that game theory actually came from poker, that von Neumann was a poker player and that he realized that if he could solve poker that it was a game that really modeled a lot of complex human strategic decision making in the best way possible. Um, and so I thought, Oh, this is really interesting. What is this poker thing? Let me, let me look into it. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate my lack of knowledge. I knew that poker was a card game. I'd seen it in movies. I'd seen the movie rounders. Um, you know, I knew what poker was, but beyond its pop culture, reality. I had no idea what was really going on. So I started looking into poker and reading about it and something just kind of clicked. I thought, huh, this is actually potentially a way into the topic. What if I learned this game, this game that John von Neumann thought was the perfect model for human decision-making and use that journey as kind of this backbone of my exploration of luck and the role of luck in our lives and so that's that's how the book was born originally that's how I conceived of the project
1: and you mentioned you never really liked games growing up um, and so you had no interest in poker um, did you think did you think you'd learn to like it? did you think this was just going to be unpleasant? like <laughs>
0: That's a, that's a really good question. So before I actually sold the book, I did a test run. So in the book, um, and during this project, I found this incredible mentor. Um, I knew that, you know, to learn something, uh, you need someone to teach you if you want to learn quickly and you need, you need someone to mentor you to kind of be by your side. And so I approached one of the best players in the world, Eric Seidel, and talk about luck you know he he agreed he agreed to take me on um, originally he agreed to a test period to see if we'd get along to see you know how it worked and it worked really well and we ended up being kind of on the same wavelength and so we ended up working together but I wanted to make sure before I sold the book and before I actually committed you know so much time to it that as you, as you say that I wouldn't hate it because you can't write about something that you absolutely hate. I mean, you can, but I think it's just, it would have been a miserable experience. And at that point in my life, I could have written a book about anything. You know, why, why in the world write about something that you're going to hate? So I actually, before I sold the book, before I wrote the proposal, um, I, I mean, I talked to my agent. I was like, Hey, this is kind of the idea. How do you, how does it sound? And she said, sounds great, you know oh, wait, looking forward to the proposal. And then I actually spent about three months with Eric um, learning kind of the the basics of the game and starting my journey that way. And then I wrote the proposal and sold the book after I realized that, oh, this game is fascinating. It's much more interesting than I ever thought it could be. I really like Eric. He's a great teacher, I think this is going to work. I think it's really, really important when you're committing multiple years of your life to something. This is true of any book project. It's just good good practice and good advice. It's really good to dive in first um, before committing to it and make sure that this is what you thought it was because sometimes something that sounds great in your head ends up being really not so great in reality, and it's really nice to find that out sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine how it would have been if you'd hated it and been forced to do it for however many years. Um, so one of the things that was kind of interesting about your angle on this book is that you were especially interested in learning to play poker from a psychological perspective. Um, and that's kind of what you approached Eric Seidel about is kind of the psychological underpinnings of poker, especially because you have a PhD in psychology um, and this is a bit of a departure from the previous kind of stories you might read about rags to poker riches, um, because it seems like many of the most recent kind of Hollywood glitzy stories of poker are about people, white men, let's be clear, making it in poker through <laughs> the power of math. And it's all math and statistics. And math and psychology both have roles in poker. So it felt like lately math and statistics were kind of the more popular approach to the game. Why did you want to emphasize kind of the psychological aspect?
0: I think that it's really important to realize where your strengths are and where your limitations are. I knew that I want. I had a limited amount of time to kind of learn this new skill, to immerse myself in this new world. And I haven't taken a math class since high school. And I am a writer. Like, let's be clear, I do not use math in my daily life. As a journalist, I don't use math. Um, in my grad school work, when I was working on my psychology PhD, yeah, I had to take... A basic stats class. But then, to be honest, um, and I'm very transparent about this in my dissertation, um, for any advanced analysis, I hired a statistician to do it for me because I didn't want to mess up. I know that it's a limitation of mine. I never bothered to take advanced statistics. It wasn't interesting to me. Um, I knew that there were people, I knew there were better uses of my time. So someone, you know, when you read my dissertation, all of those advanced modeling things, I didn't do them. Someone else did. I paid them and I, you know, was someone who, this is their specialty. This is what they're good at. And I actually think that that makes my data, my results much better because this person also had no idea what My hypotheses were so there was no bias. I just gave them raw data and said, Here, let me, here's what I want you to do and tell me if it says anything and could have, could have said nothing. Um, Of course, I ran some basic tests myself, like I could do a t test comparing means, but that's about it. Like that's the extent of my knowledge. And it was all on the computer. There was no math involved in terms of mental math, in terms of figuring other stuff out. You know, this is stuff where you have formulas and that's it. So that was never my strong suit, but psychology is my background. I, mean, I studied how people think. I studied how people make decisions. My dissertation was specifically on decision-making in risky conditions under uncertainty, when you're under stress, when you're under kind of emotional duress. I had people play stock market games. So this is something that's very similar to poker in a lot of ways. And so why not capitalize on your strengths? And there's also a reason I studied psychology. I do believe that psychology is a hugely important and often undervalued component of almost anything. And I wanted to kind of, you know, if since I didn't have countless hours and years to spend on poker, why not leverage the expertise I do have? Why not try to find the approach that best capitalizes? on the skills and talents that I bring with it that I bring with me. I think that's a smart approach to anything if you want to get good quickly, um, or at least if you want to learn something quickly. Of course I knew I'd have to plug in the math leaks, you know, I my mental math was basically non existent. It's much better right now. Um, But as Eric told me very early on, as long as you can add, subtract, multiply and divide you'll be okay in the long run. And I think I was. And I knew I could never compete with the stats wizards at their own game. So why try?
1: I actually just wanted to say that I love it when scientists hire professional statisticians <laughs> to do their stats. I think that makes for better papers, just in general. I
0: agree. I agree. Like, you know, they know what they're doing. They know what the what which analyses are best. It's so easy to make a mistake, to make a rookie mistake and to not try to create false positives, but do it anyway, because you didn't use quite the right analysis and you didn't quite understand how to look at your data. And so I figured why not hire someone who spends their life doing this and who is completely unbiased, who doesn't care about my results. In some ways, I think it's just it's good practice. I did it because I didn't trust myself, and I knew enough not to trust myself. I knew that my even if I could figure out how to build an advanced model, which I could, like, let's be clear, there's very good stuff online. There are very good statistical programs. Who knows if my inputs would have been wrong? Who knows if I would have, you know, screwed up what what I did on one step or another? Um, so I I figured let's leave it to someone who does this.
1: And I also wanted to ask, you know, you kind of, there's two approaches, well, main approaches to poker. One is kind of the mathy statistical side. Um, You kind of went with the psychological approach and you don't really ever address this in the book, but you do, you do address playing styles. There are people who play very conservatively and people who play very aggressively. And I was wondering, does approaching poker through the psychological route as opposed to the mathematical route, tend toward different styles of play like do the mathematically obsessed players tend to be more cautious or more aggressive like do you did you notice that at all
0: um i did not but i think if i were to hazard a guess i would say that the more i actually no, i i think that there wouldn't be a difference at the end of the day I think the best mathematical players who run all of the models, who really truly understand it, they are going to be no more and no less aggressive than they need to be because it's game theory optimal. But um kidding aside, I think that they're going to – be more aggressive than you think because I've often been very surprised. So I ended up you know, buying the solver software and learning how to do that because I think it's important to know your enemy and also important to use all the tools that are available to you. So I wasn't going to say oh, only psychology, screw you math. I'm going to use everything that's out there. It's just harder for me. It's not what I'm good at, but it's helpful and it's good to kind of supplement all of the other things. But Um, it's surprising that, you know, game theoretically, you actually bluff a lot more than you think you do. So I was originally going to say that I think that probably, um, they would be more aggressive, but, um, it's, most amateurs don't use math and amateurs, who are kind of just in it for fun, who are, you know, there to have a good time. They are they tend to be the most aggressive players because they don't care. They just want to bluff. They just want to win. They want to win the pots. They want to win the chips. If they're playing, they're there to play and so they go kind of crazy. And so I think that those people probably um end up counterbalancing kind of the the very mathematically savvy ones and bluff much more than they should.
1: So it's not so much a kind of matter of math versus psych. It's more of a matter of experience or a lack thereof.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I also think it's a matter of what you're there, of goals, what you're there to accomplish. Um, it's a matter of discipline. It's a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of skill. I mean, it's a matter of a lot of different things. And it's also a matter of personality. I mean, some players who are really, really good um, that I've played against are incredibly aggressive um, and that's just the way they are. And that suits their personality and they're able to execute it well because of that. While other players are much more conservative and that's their style, that suits their personality and they also execute it well. I think the best players figure out what style works for them. And the best, best players are super just super nuanced when it comes to reading the table and adjusting. So someone like Eric, my coach is capable of being incredibly conservative and incredibly aggressive. It just depends on what environment you put him in. And that's where psychology comes in. How do you read the table? How do you adjust? How do you figure out who your opponents are so that you can play maximally efficiently and exploitatively when it comes to them, specifically them.
1: And, one of the things that your book does is not, it's not just about poker, it's about kind of applying what you learned from poker to kind of your daily life. Um, and one of the things you had to learn basically first was failure. Um, and I was I was really fascinated by this section, because it's not just permission to fail, or, you know, failure as pain, or anything like that. Can you talk about what you learned about failure?
0: Absolutely. This was such an eye-opening lesson to me. It actually came from a man named Dan Harrington, who is a former professional poker player, um, who retired, um, a while back. And he's also an investor and has an investing business. And he, he wrote, um, some of the most popular strategy books on, on poker called Harrington on Hold'em. And he's a good friend of Eric's. So he and I met and, you know, we were talked talked poker, and he is the one who told me that, you know, I have to lose in order to win, that if I'm winning, I'm not going to be able to learn. And the the main point is that when things are going well, you don't really question your decision process. You think you're doing well because the outcome is good. The thing that makes you question the process and reflect and look back is if you're not doing well because then you actually have an incentive to pick apart the causal chain that got you there to really examine your thinking, to really examine your decision-making along the way. And so in his mind, you can't be a successful poker player unless you've been losing because first that that means that You, if you're, if you're going to become good, that you've gone through and tried to kind of disentangle the, the outcome from the process and tried to figure out, okay, what were the decision steps that got me there? How can I optimize it? How can I learn? Um, that it's a really, really good teaching tool, but also it teaches you the skills to. Not screw up when you're winning because you have to be emotionally resilient. You have to be able to lose and keep going and say, okay, you know, I figured out why I lost. I've remedied that mistake or I figured out that it wasn't, you know, my fault in this particular case. And I'm going to keep going. I'm going to improve. I'm going to work on this and I can do this. Um, and it's really, really hard because it's really easy to have you know, emotional balance and to say, Oh, yeah, life is good. Everything is good when things are going well. And it's much more difficult to do it when things aren't going well. And so if you're able to master it, when you're losing, um, then you really have the game beat. But it's something that I think people have to work on. I have to work on uh, for, for my whole life.
1: Yeah, when you put it that way, when you say, Oh, you don't, learn from success you learn from failure like that it just something clicked in my mind that makes so much sense to me when i read it i was like oh that's true um and <laughs> you did indeed fail a lot on your way to success
0: in a good I way did. <laughs> um, i did i did a really good job of failing
1: <laughs> great work you failed like a champ thank you thank you <laughs> um but what i found fascinating was um that you ended up actually going to a coach um, and what you ended up doing under the coach, at least the way you wrote about it, it sounded like cognitive behavioral therapy to me. And I was actually wondering how much of this kind of experience of learning poker and of being coached was like therapy.
0: Oh my God. So much of it. I mean, this was, it's like, my, my time in poker was like one big therapy session, honestly, because it made me understand so many things about myself and made me excavate so many things about myself. I mean, all of your emotional baggage is going to come out at the poker table at one point or another because you're there for long hours. You're there in emotionally kind of very hot conditions. You are forced to play no matter how you're feeling if you're playing a tournament, not a cash game. So let me just assume that your audience is not an audience of poker players. I play tournament poker, which means you buy in for a certain amount and then you just get chips that – are there to kind of keep score as opposed to actually have any cash value and it's not like you can get up at any point in time it's not like you can get more chips at any point in time you just have to play um and tournaments normally go for about 12 hours a day um and big tournaments go over multiple days so the big difference is when most people think of poker they think of cash games which means you know if i buy in for a hundred dollars i get a hundred chips or you know a hundred dollars worth of chips and I can get up anytime I want and stop playing anytime I want and cash out. I can always get more chips, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of one of the caveats in order to explain why tournament poker is so emotionally grueling. Cash games are too, but in tournament poker, you're forced To kind of experience all of these situations, you're forced to get tired and, you know, your emotional resources are depleted and so much stuff comes out. There were so many moments when I thought, wow, this is like, this is like therapy because if you don't deal with it, you're not going to be a good player. And yeah, my coach, um, so I got a mental game coach, Jared, uh, Jared Tendler, and he definitely helped as well. And when you say cognitive behavioral therapy, that is, I mean, a lot of his approach is based on that. That's why I like him. There are other coaches who have different approaches. And I was very glad to work with someone, um, who had a background and an approach that, I agreed with, that I'd written about before in terms of its efficacy, that I knew the data on, that I knew kind of was going to be an effective way of helping me forward.
1: It's too bad. Missed opportunity to have a Freudian coach.
0: Oh, they they exist. Absolutely. Oh my God.
1: Do they really?
0: <laughs> yes, there are, uh, there are coaches. And listen, I don't want to say anything bad in the sense that they are really good coaches that are very effective for a lot of people but like hypnotherapy is a thing and I just couldn't uh I, I couldn't do that
1: I just want to hear a coach say ah I see you are failing your golf swing because of your father <laughs> that would be something um now um you're especially interested in the concept of luck that's why you decided to do this anyway um and I was very interested in the section that you had on the way attitude influences luck. So, for example, um, people who think they are lucky will perform better on some tasks, Mm -hmm. Um, like, for example, counting photos, things like that. Why, if you think you're lucky, are you better at this?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's you know, I, I wanted to be very clear that. I don't believe in statements like you make your own luck. I just don't think that's true because that's not what luck is. Luck is chance. You don't make chance. You know, it just happens. However, what you what you can do is your mental attitude can make you actually more aware of the environment. They can make you more observant. They can make you kind of more engaged and pay attention more and be able to pick up cues that someone who is not as engaged. Who thinks, oh, I'm unlucky. I might as well just not not bother. Who's not paying attention as much, just won't pick up. They won't get the same opportunities. They won't see them um, when they're presented with them, and just quite simply, they're they're not going to observe as well. And this particular study that you referred to um, was done by an English uh, psychologist, Richard Wiseman, and it's such a funny study. It's I, I love it. Um, he asked people. Um, and some of them had identified as lucky and some as unlucky, to count the number of photographs in a newspaper. And he um, looked to see how long it would take them. And on average, the lucky people took seconds, like 20 seconds, and the unlucky one took minutes, like four minutes. I don't actually remember the numbers, so don't quote me on those. But the unlucky people took significantly longer, minutes as opposed to seconds. And the reason was that they failed to see this big sign on page two or three of the of the newspaper, which said, stop counting. There are 43 photographs um, in this paper. And so, it was this observant attitude. It was being open to it. It was actually just being more able, more willing, um, more used to taking in more of the world. It's actually, I didn't write about this in the book, but there's some really interesting work on vision on attitude and vision and uh, people who who actually research this and who look at vision um and just the physical sense of vision, have found that um, people who have a more positive attitude, who are happier, who are more optimistic, tend to literally see more of the world. So they have a bigger visual field. They take in more and remember more. Whereas people who are depressed, um, their visual frame actually narrows. Um, so when you're sad, when you're in a bad mood, you you just don't notice as much. Your brain doesn't process it. You don't Um, you you just you might as well have not seen it, which I think is fascinating, because it's not like your vision improves or gets worse. It's just that what your brain notes changes.
1: And this was very interesting to me, um, thinking about luck and observation. um, Because, you know, people who thought they were lucky, did better on this photo identifying task, because they just observed something. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, that, you know, that means like, Lucky people do better, but at the same time, the whole concept of a hot streak, which seems like a big run of luck, is not really a thing in sports.
0: <laughs> so. Well, it- it may or may not be right. Um, So I start off the book by talking about the hot hand fallacy. I mean, early on in the book, it's not I don't think it's literally in the first chapter. Um, and there's work that's been done in the last few years that shows that actually there is something to the hot hand, even in sports. Um, so your attitude really actually can affect it not always and not all sports, and not all areas. But um, in some careers and in some things, basically, the more important the mental game is, the more something like that can actually matter, um, which is was fascinating to me, because when I was in grad school, we knew that the hot hand fallacy was a fallacy. And so to see that starting to be overturned um, was just really mind-blowing to me um, that, wow, the hot hand fallacy might be real in certain contexts.
1: Yeah, the one you mentioned in the book um, is a 2018 nature study um mm-hmm. that showed that filmmakers and artists can go on hot streaks yeah um, and I was actually cool? <laughs> well I mean part of me was like okay that's cool and the other part of me was it's like different though does that really count because people produce art all the time but it's up to other people to think it's good so like it's... once people start thinking everything you
0: do is magic
1: it has to be really bad to break your streak right like no once this they stand you.
0: This is true, but it's also true in mathematics. Um, so it's true in other careers like that. So mathematicians tend to go on streaks and that's much more objective um, where they just get more creative. And I do think that you're right though, that there is, there's certainly a feedback loop because part of it is attitude. So if people are you know, taking your work well and receiving it well, you're probably actually going to be more inspired and more creative as a result because you want to kind of keep creating. So I do think that how the audience is responding is important, um, but there's also, and so I don't uh, cite some of these papers that I read, um, but there are also papers that look at sports and that show that there are actually sometimes hot hands in sports, like in actual athletics. So so there is mounting evidence that um, hot hands can happen in a lot of different areas. And I think that that can be a very fascinating thing. I think your point absolutely stands. Um, and I think that we do need to be careful with artistic stuff um, because there is this sort of, oh, everything you do now is brilliant. Um, but if you looked at the paper, um, you saw that their um, productivity actually also increases. Um, so the output also gets hotter. Um, it's So it's not just, oh, um, you know, the, their things are doing better. But it's also... They're able to suddenly produce more.
1: That's on me. I only read your reference in the book. I didn't read the
0: paper. <laughs> oh, it's all—it's all good. I don't—I don't expect you to. Uh, I don't expect you to read every paper I referenced in the book. That would be—that would be a heroic feat. That I don't think anyone would ever. I—I—I I, I mean, I don't even remember every paper I referenced. In the
1: book. <laughs> um. So you know, we we're just talking about kind of the hot hand fallacy, um, and whether or not it's a fallacy, and. I just want to say one of the things I love about this book is that it does not teach anyone to play poker. Um, I can safely say that I might actually know less about how to play poker than I did before I read the book, Um, just because now I I feel overwhelmed. Um, But instead, and what I think is actually really fascinating, is that the book brings together a lot of fundamental psychological concepts into and kind of under the umbrella of poker. So it's like, it's like intro psych, but poker format. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I loved that. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the kind of psychological concepts that you ended up really discovering, uh, in particular, the sunk cost fallacy, <laughs> which you have fallen for,
0: I have fallen for it. And it's, first of all, it's just such a great name because it's so evocative. Um, so the sunk cost fallacy is a fallacy of decision-making. And I think it's something that, I mean, if you tell me you've never fallen for the sunk cost fallacy, I'll I'll probably call you a liar because it's just, it seems to be so strong and so prevalent. Um, and it's just this notion that we look at things that we've already invested And rather than say, Oh, that's a sunk cost. I can't get it back. So I might as well just cut it. Um, and move on if I need to. If the environment has changed, if the information has changed, we hold on to it and we say, Oh, but I've already put this much in. I have to stay. I have to keep doing this. And this happens with money. So oftentimes, you know, when people invest in something or make a down payment or something like that, and then the information changes completely and they should just walk away. You know, they should walk away from the investment. They should walk away from whatever it is that they put money in. Um, and instead they say, but oh my God, I've already put in this amount of money. I can't walk away. And so they end up putting good money after bad, um, and losing even more money, even though the rational thing would be to say, okay, I can't get this back. So let me maximize what I still have. And it also happens, I think all the time with emotional things and time investment and kind of investment of just energy when people say, well, you know, I've already spent this amount of time on this. So many times when I was in grad school, there were a lot of people who just realized they were miserable, like they hated it. And they said, well, but I've already spent, you know, a year, I might as well stick it out. You've got five years to go. I mean, this is a long time. Maybe I'm now wondering this how right much thing. of
1: academia is peopled with sunk cost
0: fallacies. <laughs> so many, and some so of them. Many. I mean, I saw this, <laughs> and I saw this, and we're studying decision making. I mean, <laughs> so that's just the the crazy thing. They know what the sunk cost fallacy is, and they're doing it, and they just they just stick. You know, inertia is such a big thing. How many people do you know in relationships who have decided oh well we've already spent so much time together you know we might as well move you know move in together because we've already been together for two years i don't want to say that i wasted two years of my life well don't waste the rest of your life get out if it's a bad relationship don't move in together or well maybe we should just have a kid then usually these couples end up getting divorced end up getting separated it's not good it's a toxic environment um but you stay in because you've already invested so much time. I found out that I did that with some friendships just because I knew people for such a long time. And I would stay in these very kind of toxic frenemy types of those situations because I, you know, just had already invested all of this energy in it. And poker actually freed me up so much because I I realized, wait. This is a sunk cost. These are sunk costs. And by the way, as people will see in my book, I still make the mistake and I still make it very, with very real consequences, (laughs) both in terms of health and finance. Um, but so I don't think it's something that you can ever be cured of, but being aware of it and being aware of it in such a visceral way that poker makes you aware of, um, basically all of your biases is somehow incredibly empowering because all of a sudden you realize that you can't change the past, but you can change the present and the future. And so many of us just look at the past and say, well, I, I've done this, I've already done this, so I have to keep investing in it. I, ca- I have to keep doing this. And that's not true. You don't have to.
1: Um, and I also was very interested, you talk a tiny bit about it. Um, I'd like to hear more about the description experience gap.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And what that
1: this- is. Because I, I think I know, but I'm not sure I know.
0: So it's something that um, was actually um, crucial to, to what I learned in grad school, but poker really kind of brought it forward. It's the difference between how our mind learns when we hear something described to us, learning through description, and when we actually do it. Learning through experience. Um, and the difference is huge. So when things are described to us, even if we think we understand it, we don't, because in probabilistic terms, are like when it comes to probabilistic terms, our brains just suck. We are really bad at probabilities. Even people who study probabilities for a living are bad at probabilities in their daily lives in one in in one context or another. It's so incredibly difficult to kind of, to internalize a lot of probabilistic rules and a lot of the ways in which statistics work in the real world. I actually had a fascinating experience um, a few weeks ago, where I interviewed um, Danny Kahneman for the New Yorker radio hour about COVID and about kind of his thoughts on COVID. Um, And he admitted that he almost traveled to France in March because he didn't take it seriously enough, even though, I mean, he has the Nobel Prize in economics, and this is what he studies. He couldn't internalize exponential growth. It just didn't makes sense to him. And so even though he saw the numbers and he had all of the tools to do the analysis, he didn't and he didn't take the right conclusions. Um, and that to me was just mind-boggling because that's Danny Kahneman. I mean this is the one guy in the world who should know this um, because this is this is what he's been doing his entire life. Um, so that's description. Experience is experiential learning. Have you been through this? Have you actually sampled it yourself? And actually, Kahneman, um, when he did all his Nobel winning work on biases, he found that people make huge mistakes in evaluating different gambles, different risks, different probabilities, unless you have them actually sample them over and over for themselves. So he often would have people play a game where they actually, you know, make a choice and they get money and make a choice, get money, or lose money. And then all of a sudden they started understanding it because they were sampling. Sampling correctly. Most of the time, we don't get that opportunity. Most of the time, we don't get that opportunity because life is filled with one-off events. You know, you either experience something or you don't, and you're, the way you think about risk is really skewed as a result. We're not intuitive statisticians, and life doesn't make it easier. What I found that poker did, um, which is something that I wasn't necessarily expecting is it bridged the description experience gap because you are playing a game and you're actually sampling all of these probabilities correctly because you are playing hand after hand after hand and you're seeing the feedback over and over and over. And so it's how your brain learns well because you're actually experiencing and yet it's learning correctly because it's not one-off events. You're actually doing it in a systematic Random sampling fashion, um, and so it 's a beautiful way to actually teach your mind to be better at making some of those statistical evaluations and to understand what those types of probabilities mean in reality and The funny thing is actually, so you know Danny Kahneman had these problems with exponential growth. The community that I found to understand it the earliest and the best were the Top poker players um, that I'd become friends with over the last few years—they um, were some of the earliest on the uptake to realize what co- what was happening and what COVID would look like.
1: Wow! <laughs> so, I one of the habits that you picked up—you—I you, feel like poker taught you a lot of very good habits in a way, um, by unteaching your biases. Um, but one of the habits that you developed in poker was actually writing down the big confrontations that you had, um, to see if you were (laughs) acting due to chance. And throughout the book, you're actually constantly writing down your results and recording them and going over them, looking for where to improve. And it's like awe worthy. And I was wondering, have you applied this to any other areas of your life? (laughs)
0: i've tried i've tried because it's actually i i really i didn't want to do it at the beginning because it takes so much time but there's no way to become good at poker without doing it and people who play online they have software that does it for them that just constantly records everything so that then you can run these analyses and that's great but when you play live you have to do it yourself because no one is doing it for you and I just learned what an amazing tool it was because it gives you this objective in the moment analysis of your, of the outcome versus the process, which is so difficult in everyday life because we usually conflate the two. But all of a sudden you have these tools. You can say, okay, you know, this is what happened. This is kind of how I decided along the way. This was the outcome. Now let me later run the, you know, look to see. How often is this outcome supposed to take place? You know, where am I in terms of variance? Did I get lucky? Did I get unlucky? You know, did I run according to luck? Um, where am I? And seeing how powerful that was and how much more objective it made me when looking at myself was really eye-opening. And I thought, wow, we should really use this as a decision aid in everyday life. And I've tried. I really have, um, and in important decisions, I really try to write as much down in the moment as I can so that I can go back later and don't have, this is another one of those biases, hindsight bias, where you basically change memory and change the way that you think you thought of things as a result of an outcome. So everyone says, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. This is really what you're talking about, that once you know the outcome You think, oh, I always knew this. I always took this into account. This is what I was thinking. And chances are you weren't and you didn't and all that is wrong, but you don't think you're lying. You actually just kind of went back and you edited your memory. And it's so useful to have some sort of objective record of what actually transpired, of what actually was going on. And so... I've done that. And whenever I've done that, I've been really grateful that I have. But I would be lying to you if I say that I do it all the time. It's difficult. It's time consuming. And sometimes I just don't want to bother.
1: That's reasonable. <laughs> but Yeah, I mean, <laughs> poker seem to give you a lot of good habits. It broke you a lot of uh, broke you a lot of the inherent biases that you have in your own behavior. um, And it taught you how to analyze your own behavior, understand your own motivations, learn from failure. I was wondering, did it teach you any psychological bad habits?
0: You know, that's a a really good question. Um, And I think I'm very lucky that it didn't. And the only reason it didn't is that I had such an incredible coach. I had someone like Eric Seidel who actually nipped a lot of the bad habits that would have formed in the bud before they formed, because he would notice them and he would say, hey, this is bad. You shouldn't be doing this. Um And so I think to me, it was actually something that was Incredibly useful. And I think helped me see a lot of the bad habits that I have in just day to day life, um, and become a much stronger person. I mean, one of the, one of the ways that one of the things that Eric taught me that I realized that, you know, it's so important to just keep in mind always. Um, and that he really just knocked out of me, um, is, to not dwell on bad beats, which is when you should have won, but you lost kind of the things that happen. Um, he not only taught me not to dwell on them, but to just to actually like actively try to forget them. So wh- I would want to say, you know, oh, I had this wonderful hand and I should have won, but then this bad thing happened. And he just right away said, don't do that. It's like throwing your garbage on someone else's lawn. It was such a great image. You know, why would you ever want to like, take your garbage and dump it on your neighbor's lawn. That's not a nice thing to do. But if you think about how often you just have the urge to do that in day-to-day life, you know, just tell someone your bad beats in, in life. Just, oh my God, can you believe this? And when you are aware of it, all of a sudden, you actually become a much happier person and a much more positive person because you just stop dwelling on it. You say, yeah, that happened. That sucks. Okay, moving on. And then you forget it because you're not going to tell it to someone else. It doesn't make you feel better to tell it to someone else. It just kind of makes that other person feel shittier because you put garbage on their lawn. Um, and so I actually have found that, you know, as a result of that, I've become just more positive and don't dwell on the things that you can't control and – because you can't control them. So what are you going to do about it? You know, it, it really doesn't help to dwell on it at all. What you can control is your reaction. What you can control is your attitude. What you can control is your own actions. Um, I don't think I would have learned that just through poker. Um. Because poker doesn't teach you that necessarily. There are so many poker players who just tell you bad beat after bad beat after bad beat after bad beat. Even good, bo- even good poker players. So that's not something that's inherent in poker. That's something that I just got lucky that I had Eric. So I think for me, it was a combination of poker plus Eric, um, that really helped me get the good mental habits and not develop any bad ones because when i started developing them he just made sure to break that cycle right away
1: and i also want to talk um about the role of gender here um poker is a very 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 male dominated sport Um, (laughs) only i think three percent of professional poker players are women is that right
0: Yep, three percent of any given field. So if you Oh, go just so not even practice, professional.
1: Three yeah. percent are poker players. Oh. Yep. yep. It's also um, um in the United States, I got the impression it's also very white and very straight.
0: Um, uh, you know, it, it really it depends. So one of the one of the people who is considered who's often up for contention for contention as number one um in the world is black. Um phil ivy mm-hmm. um so so there there is some diversity, um but yeah, of course, um, it is majority, white, and straight, but there are also some very prominent gay poker players um who there was uh there's one Jason Somerville, who was, I think the first one to really to come out, and he paved the way for a lot of others um but um that. And so, so the fact that he was willing to do that, that he was willing to be open, was huge, huge, huge for the poker community. But they're outliers. you know. Yes, most of them are white and straight and male.
1: And you talked a little bit in the book about your experiences playing as a woman, involving about what those of us who have experienced life presenting as a woman might expect. Um, <laughs> and I was wondering, how do you think your experience might have been different if you'd been a man?
0: well i it's so hard for me to even begin to to speculate on that because I just because i've gone through my whole life as a woman, but you know, I think that poker actually helped me understand a lot of what society has been doing to me in more subtle ways throughout my life that I didn't think was happening to me you know I'm someone who came to poker from a successful career in another area. So it's not like I was 18 years old um, and, you know, had no experience in anything. And so I thought of myself um, as a fairly confident person. Um, and poker taught me that that wasn't actually true, that I'd internalized a lot of social norms of behavior for women, a lot of things that were and weren't accepted, um, you know, that it had actually seeped its way into just deeply into how I saw myself, how I acted, how I reacted, and it wasn't a good realization. And so, that was kind of at the basis. And then, of course, I had some really, really nasty experiences of just like flat-out misogyny and really like horrible moments um, at the poker table. Let me caveat by saying, you know, there are some amazing poker players, obviously. Um, I had, you know, I had the best mentor ever and so many poker players are very supportive of women. However, <laughs> that caveat aside, there are also ones who aren't and who don't think that you should be there. Um, or if you're there, then you might as well be useful in other ways. Like I was propositioned at a poker table, which I still can't quite believe happened, but it did. Um, so, so a lot of that would not have happened to me if I were male. Um, and I think it would have been a very different, just like, social camaraderie type of environment, which I often didn't get to experience because I was female. So I think I would have gotten much less of the kind of hard edges, um, and more of just like the fun social feel of the game much sooner. Um, there came a time where it became that way for me because, um, Quite honestly, people started knowing who I was. I became po- sponsored by Poker Star. so I want you know I was wearing patches. No one was going to be a dick to me usually, um, because I was kind of a more public figure in the game. Um, so, so my experience changed that way. But um, I think it would have been much more like that from the very beginning had I been male. I also would have learned a lot less, I think, because I don't think I wouldn't have had to work through as many things. I wouldn't have had to be as introspective. I wouldn't have had to be as kind of metacognitive about the whole experience. Um, and so I think that maybe I would have learned, you know, I, I would have learned other things, but I wouldn't have learned a lot of the lessons that I learned as a female. Um, all of that being said, I'm very glad I'm female and I you know i'm glad that i had the experience i had because i think it made me into a much stronger version of myself and a much stronger female and i hope that i can inspire others um and hopefully give other people tools um to to kind of empower themselves whether they're male or female or you know or whatever it is they identify as um to to really embrace it and learn some of these lessons and try to be stronger, more resilient versions of themselves.
1: I just had this amazing vision in my head. I was like, well, you can't bring mace to a poker table. I'm sure you can't. So what could you bring that you could spray at a guy who's being awful? And I was thinking like that really cheap spray cheese, you know, the cheese and like a can. And like, if they're just being terrible, you just aim it like right at their face.
0: And it's harmless, oh, right? It's would it, cheap. Would it, wouldn't that be the day?
1: <laughs> so you can use it. Take the cheese. Um, and you mentioned that you got a lot of like, you know, therapy, basically. You ended up having to introspect and really kind of learn some like learned, ingrained behaviors about being submissive and about, you know, kind of mm-hmm. bowing to pressure and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that as a fellow writer really fascinated me was that you transfer those changes to other aspects of your life including calling and raising publications <laughs> to give you more money for your work so first yep. i bow down before you you goddess second can you teach me
0: <laughs> oh my god i still can't believe i did that <laughs> <is> so awesome <laughs> But I've never done that before. And honestly, one of the reasons I've never done that before is because of what I know. So a number of years ago, I don't remember what year this piece came out, um, but I wrote a piece for The New Yorker um, about negotiating while female. And I reported on the story um, that I briefly mentioned in the book as well when I was doing it about this female philosophy professor who got a tenure-track job offer, which is amazing, right? You you know academia as well. You know how hard those offers are to come by. And she just, she was really excited. And she just wrote, she didn't even ask for more money. She just wrote for clarification of a few, like, really basic things that totally made sense, Um, you know, She wanted a clarified leave policy. She wanted clarifications on some of, you know, some of the other elements of the job. And instead of clarifying, they took away the job offer. They just took it away. They said, well, clearly you're not going to be a good fit for this college. And I was just horrified that this had happened. And I also just can't help but, but think that that never would have happened to a man. You know, they never would have questioned his commitment to the job if he'd asked about the leave policy. You know, that's just not something that would cross people's minds. And the fact that this was legal also just kind of was mind boggling to me. It just seemed like such biased, I don't know what. And so I think that women are very, you know, they've been socialized, but it's also smart. You know, a lot of times when you negotiate, people say, I, I don't want to deal with you. You know, what a bitch. Right away, you start getting called bad names. And so I think that what poker did, so the the story you're referring to when I managed to negotiate up my rate, it also taught me smarter ways to negotiate that aren't necessarily asking for a raise or kind of doing it flat out, but just kind of hedging and you know, playing in a smarter way, not necessarily a more aggressive way. And so in this particular case, I just kind of, you know, let them come to me and kept deferring and giving reasons why I couldn't do it and let them up the stakes. And then, you know, finally I said, you know, well, you'd need to pay me more than I'm paid, you know, per word um, at my home magazine. And then they did it. Um, And at that point, you know, they'd been kind of they'd been negotiating for a while. And so um, it's not like I just came out and said, Hey, I want $3 a word. I did not do that. Um, And probably these days people would laugh because this was also a few years ago. And I think journalism is actually not doing as well now as it was even two years ago. I would Um, say $3 a word is an amazing rate. Yep. (laughs) I don't, I don't think, I don't think I would be able to, I don't think I'd be able to get that right now, honestly. Um, But I never would have even had the nerve, um, to do that before or, or the blueprint or kind of the, even the idea of how one might go about negotiating in a way that was smarter. Um, and poker actually gave that to me. You know, it thinking through poker strategy and through how you play a hand helped me kind of figure that out in real life. Now, sometimes I completely bungle poker hands and just, Say what was I thinking? That was terrible. I shouldn't have done that. And I do that in real life too. It's not like all of a sudden you become a brilliant decision maker always. You know, you you make mistakes. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you still get, uh, you know, emotional. Sometimes shit happens. You know, it's life. It's poker. Um, and so you know, yeah, I make a I make mistakes in poker and I make mistakes in life all the time. But at least I can spot them better. And at least when I make them, I can analyze them. And at least I now have a way forward, a way of not making the mistake. Um, and I got that from the game.
1: And you mention in the book that you've always been fascinated by the psychological idea of luck. In the end, not that it's really the end, <laughs> what did you learn about luck?
0: I learned that you can't avoid it, that there's luck in just – in. Not just about in everything that life is so much more about luck than we'd ever want to admit to ourselves. And that actually, that gets at the title of the book. Um, the biggest bluff. Um, I, what I mean by the biggest bluff, as I explain near the end of the book, is that. The biggest bluff that we have to tell ourselves and we have to tell ourselves in order to survive and to do well and to thrive is that we have more control than we actually do. Because if you don't believe that, then, you know, you're, you're just going to be doomed to inaction. It's a really depressing and demoralizing way to be. Um, and so you need to kind of understand that, but then bluff yourself. You, you're the most important person to bluff. You need to kind of say, okay, you know, on an intellectual level, I understand that there's chance in just about everything that, you know, I can die in the next minute. And I, You know, that could happen, and I have no way of predicting it. And that's okay. I have to be okay with that. And I have to act as if that weren't the case. I have to act as if I can control more than I actually can. Because, you know, at the end of the day, there are lots and lots of things that we can control. And that's what we need to focus on in order to be the most effective versions of ourselves.
1: And finally, I feel like your poker journey here let you bring the stuff that you learned from psych training into the real world right? Poker became kind of a microcosm of human behavior. And I was wondering, is there another game that could do this? Is it possible that we could change ourselves and find psychological parallels through gaining expertise in anything?
0: I can't say for sure that the answer is no. Of course, it's possible. Um, What I can say is that kind of the most prominent games won't offer you quite the same lessons because something like chess, um, which is something that people would say right away, chess is a, an amazing game and will teach you a lot of strategic thinking, but it's not going to teach you quite the same stuff about life because chess is a game of complete information. Everything is out there and there's always theoretically a correct move. Go is insanely complex strategically. It's going to teach you just so many different things. um. But once again, it's a game of complete information. Everything is out there. All the pieces are out there. Ultimately, there is a solvable strategy. Poker is a game of incomplete information, which is why it's so good as a life analog, because there is stuff that I know that you don't know. Um, And the only way you can guess it is by kind of inferring and reading and trying to figure that out. And so I think that That's what makes it so powerful as a psychological tool because there is so much going on. That said, I do believe that if you seriously go about learning and gaining expertise in anything, be it chess, be it go, be it something totally different, um, I think if you really immerse yourself in something and approach it from kind of this metacognitive perspective and really seek to master it that you can learn so much about life from true mastery of anything. You know, even you know, if you decide to become a master of knife sharpening skills or a sushi chef, I mean, all of these things have insane lessons about life. I think going deep in anything is a path to self-mastery in a sense. But I do think that poker has some unique characteristics in terms of decision-making, in terms of thinking probabilistically, um, in terms of a lot of those psychological biases um, that we encounter as humans that you won't get as a sushi chef, um, even though you might get some really profound lessons about existence.
1: Well, Maria, thank you so much for being here. This book was a ton of fun, and I won't even give you a terrible poker pun on the way out.
0: <laughs> and I appreciate that. I really do. <laughs> I have you to imagine so much, you've Bethany. heard them all. <laughs> I, I have heard a lot of them. And I also appreciate that you did not play the gambler on our way in or on our way out. That really makes me happy. Thank you.
1: <laughs> I considered Lady Gaga's poker face and discarded
0: it. I appreciate that as well.
1: (laughs) If you'd like to learn more about Maria Konnikova and her latest book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win, we've got links on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, give us a follow on Twitter, leave us a comment on Facebook, let us know what you think about the show. And if you happen to read the book, become a poker master and win millions, drop us some dollars on Patreon. We've got a fund going there that helps keep the lights on. Take care of each other, my friends. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
0: Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.